has been called the king of the New Testament epistles, and for good reason. The letter is all about God and the good news that no matter who we are or what we've done, though we're all sinful and well-deserving of God's judgment, we can be saved from God's wrath simply by trusting in God's Son. We are put right with God through grace, through faith. Salvation is a gift from God. This is the message of Romans. Now let's join Pastor Ross with our verse-by-verse study through this incredible book. All right, here we go. We are going to dive back into the most encouraging chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. We are taking our time. The truths are so valuable, the insights so practical and wonderful. We don't want to miss a thing. So because of that, let's pray together before we dive in. Now, Father God, we look to you. We thank you that you're here with us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who gives us your peace and opens up our eyes of our understanding so that we might understand these truths and not only know them, but put them into practice so that we can enjoy the benefits. In Christ's name, amen. I've got a question for you. If you were to know that something marvelous, wonderful, terrific was going to happen to you tomorrow, do you think it might make a difference how you live today? Well, let's say you were going to have a big inheritance and it would happen to you tomorrow. Or you'd move into your dream luxury home tomorrow. Or you'd get a huge raise or a promotion to that coveted CEO position. Or let's ramp this up. The tomorrow morning, you'd wake up in your perfect body. You would lose the 25 pounds, or you would gain the 25 pounds, whatever would make you happiest. And every blemish that bothers you about your physical appearance would vanish away tomorrow. Now, my guess is that what's coming tomorrow will certainly impact your frame of mind today. You'd probably have greater patience, frustrating people and frustrating things. You'd probably uh, be more gracious and extend, uh, cut more slack to people who are difficult. Uh, You'd let things go a lot easier, knowing all the good stuff that's waiting for you just around the corner. It's safe to say that if you truly believed and truly knew that tomorrow something wonderful beyond your your highest imagination was going to happen to you, the overall quality of your life that you live today would improve. And this is precisely what God wants for his children, to let what's coming tomorrow affect how we live today and through faith and patience to inherit what has been promised. And what is in your tomorrow, O believer, O child of the Most High God? Well, 
let's make the list again, a big inheritance. I'll say, co-heirs with Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, it says that all things belong to you because all things belong to the Son of God, and he has decided to share them equally with you in the resurrection. You are co-heirs with the Son of God. Let's go down the list here. How about moving into your dream house? Well, I go to prepare a place for you in my father's house. It sounds pretty wonderful up there, but he has King James's a mansion, a place for you in a bejeweled city with streets of gold. The house that you are slated to move into in the future, just around the corner, is a marvelous place indeed. How about a huge raise? I'd say from the grave all the way to heaven. That's a huge raise, people. That's a huge raise. How about a promotion? What does he call us? He says this about us. He says, we are the rulers, the royal administrators of the coming kingdom, that we judge the world with Christ sitting on throne. So I would say that's a lot better than your current occupation at hand. Amen. And how about that perfect body that you've always wanted? Well, I'll tell you what, when you wake up on resurrection morning or you're caught up to be with him in the twinkling of an eye at the voice of an archangel and the trumpet sound of God, your perishable body will be clothed with the imperishable, your corruptible body will be clothed with the incorruptible and you will be like God. That's what it says. You will share a body like the Son of God's Philippians chapter 3 and verse 21, in case you think I'm exaggerating. Now, that is what is waiting for you around the corner. You have one foot stuck in our present sufferings in a fallen world that labors under a curse, but you have another foot securely planted in the coming future glory of the freedom and the liberation of the children of God called the second coming. Now, this is what Romans 8 is trying to remind us about. Uh, pie in the sky? Well, I talked about that last time, right? Maybe it would be pie in the sky if we hadn't already tasted a piece of the pie already. We know we've tasted and seen. Our lives have been changed. This is the part that I didn't know when I was not a Christian. I thought that everyday people, to become a Christian, all you had to do was kind of become religious. You stop doing some things, you start doing Christian things, and voila, you have a Christian. I had no idea about being born again. I had no idea that the Holy Spirit encounters you in a tangible way that's evidenced by a changed life if you're in Christ. You're a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You've tasted the pie to come because it's evidenced that you can, in my case, walk into a bar and godless teenager and hear the voice of God and walk out and become a born-again Christian and from that day on to live a changed life. How does that happen? Well, I've had a piece of the pie from the sky. And we live already in this already, but not yet. 
I have one foot here in our present suffering. And you have the foot that matters planted in the eternal, the promises from God for his children of a future glory that far exceeds anything we're suffering in this life. That's the point of Romans chapter 8, is to give us joy. And we left off kind of in the middle. Really, the only question then is not, will God keep these glorious promises that are in your tomorrow? That's not the question. The question is, do you, O believer, allow the reality of what's waiting for you tomorrow in the future affect the way you live today? Or is it just something you know? So knowing that we're weak, the context of this week's passage picks up having just said, we're weak, we don't know how to pray, we live in a fallen world, there's a lot of frustration, things don't work the way they should be working. We don't work the way we're supposed to be working. And that gives a lot of frustration. But he says, no worries that the, that the Holy Spirit intercedes to God on our behalf. And here's the result of all of that. We squeeze it all together on one side for a reason. Let me show it to you now. And we know that in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. I'll explain that. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who would bring any charge against those God has chosen? It's God who pardons, acquits, pronounces innocent. That's what justify means. It's God who pardons us. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus, who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, hardship, persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Verse 36 comes from the Psalms. He says, as it's written in the Psalms, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered, but no, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, just in case you were thinking, but what about, what about you left this off the list? So he, he throws at this, my favorite line. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So let's just leave that up there because that, my friends, is three sermons right there. <laughs> I am certainly not going to try to preach all three today, though I was tempted. 
And so I want you to look at that. There are three sermons. He's saying, take heart, child of God. Number one, you've been predestined by God himself. That's today's sermon in verses 28 through 30. Next week's sermon will take 31 to 34. Cheer up, O believer. God himself is the one who declares you innocent. God himself is the one pardoning you. That's next week. And then finally, the following week, we'll end Romans chapter 8, verses 35 through 39. Cheer up, O believer. You are protected by God himself. Now, as we just look at that, why is Romans 8 in the Bible? Because God wants us to have joy and hope and peace in this present time of he calls sufferings. And our sufferings, whether you're a Christian or not, happen to us. And they're even listed in this paragraph. He says, these are the things that happen to people, whether you have faith or no. These are the present afflictions and adversities of life. And God says, if you know what's coming to you, that you've already tasted and had a deposit of the Holy Spirit has come in as a down payment, guaranteeing that the purchase will be completed. Then you can have joy. Then you can endure it a little bit easier. Then the burden will be lighter and the sting will be removed because you know that you know. The question is, do you know? Do you believe? Or do you have to be reminded? So for our purposes this morning, we're going to isolate, go ahead here, verses 28 through 30. That's this morning's sermon. And if you want some talking points and some encouragement to you who might be facing some difficulties right now, first thing we see is your bad things he will use for good. Verse 28. Your bad things he will use for good. Verse 29, your good things he will guard forever. And verse 30, your magnificent things he is guaranteed in the future. And so with that, we're going to dive in now. Most can quote Romans 8.28. I think it's the most quoted verse memorized in the Bible. But I'm not sure quoted as it is that it's apprehended and fully grasped as much as it is quoted. So let's talk about this. We've already talked about the context in verse 27, said we live in a fallen world. It's really a frustrating place. It's hard on our bodies. It's hard on relationships. It's hard on the earth. And even the earth and creation itself is waiting for the ta-da moment. When Christ appears, we appear with him, and the creation itself is released from the bondage that it was subjected to at the fall as a consequence of our sin. And so what God is saying here, the context of, of Romans 8.28 is we don't know how to pray. We're in a frustrated position. We're in this present suffering. But he says, no worries. The spirit we don't even know how to pray, but don't worry. The Spirit takes our groaning and our frustrating moments and our heartache, and he translates even that into an eloquent, powerful, effective 
prayer that hits the bullseye every time. And so we know that in all things, God is working for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. There's the context for the most quoted verse in the Bible is that we're feeling like <laughs> I'm drowning here. I didn't see this. I was just blindsided. Uh, my, road, my road just took a hard left when I was wanting to go right. And he says, no worries, no worries, no worries. The Holy Spirit is interceding for you, translating your confusion and your groaning so that we know since it's God who is doing the praying on our behalf, we know that every little thing that's concerning you today is at work by God, not the thing itself. He is using the bad thing in quotes for something good. So let's talk about that. First of all, notice the assurance that he thinks we have about this truth. He says, we know. He doesn't say we hope or we think or it's been suggested or the pastor keeps telling me. No, he says, there's a truth that we know as the children of God who have the Holy Spirit in our hearts, we have a sense, we have a, a knowledge, yes, true. We need to be reminded that God is on at work on our behalf. We do need to be reminded, but I just like that he says, hey, we know that God is working on our behalf. It's an assurance. Well, we should know it. We must know it. For you to have any semblance of joy or peace, as a Christian, you must know that God is at work with the details of your life, good, bad, and ugly, pleasant and painful, at work using those things for your good. We just need to be reminded because like the psalmist says, where are you, Lord? Why are you hiding your face from me in my time of trouble? That's how we feel. We forget. How about Peter? And we've done this all the time. Peter's on the boat. The boat's taken on water. They're caught in an unforeseen storm. And he wakes the Lord of glory up, the Son of God. He shakes him up and says, Jesus, don't you care that we're drowning here? Don't you understand? We got in this boat. You said to get in the boat. We thought we were doing the right thing. You're the one who said, let's get in the boat. Let's go to the other side. And so guess what? This wasn't even our idea. I'm adding a little. There. <laughs> Because you're a lot like Peter and so am I. It started out blue skies. When you say get in the boat, it looked beautiful out there. And suddenly these dark clouds came out of nowhere. When what? When you were asleep. Don't you care? We're hurting. We're afraid. We think this is a where it was. We think we're going down. And you don't care. You're asleep. And he says, you guys have about this much faith. I wish you did. I wish you did have this much faith. Oh, you guys of so little faith, like zero. The Son of God is on board. You just saw me raise somebody from the dead, and I'm sitting right here next to you. I'm on board. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Christ who's on board in the heart, your heart, asleep on the cushion, the center. You don't have to wake them up and say, my cause is disregarded by my God. The Lord asks his people in Isaiah chapter 40, why do you keep saying, you forgot my address, you don't know where I live? He says, am I like that? He answers that and he says, I am the Lord 
I don't lose people's addresses. I don't have to ask Siri for anything. He says, God is at work. Well, I don't see him. Silly rabbit. God, God is invisible. Right? And just be, do you need to see something to know whether or not there's some activity? Can you see, and do you know how much activity there is in this room right now with all kinds of wavelengths and all kinds of signals? You can't see a thing, but trust me, things are happening. Springtime happens. You can't see what's going on underground, but stuff's happening. Things are coming to life. There's going to be something beautiful there soon. But I can't see it and I can't feel it. Oh, that's the definition of faith. Faith knows it's there and it's working. It's just a matter of time before it's realized. So he says, we know that God is working. <laughs> when Jesus was questioned about working on the Sabbath, which they called working because he was healing. So one of the rabbis, the or the Pharisees were saying, you shouldn't be working on the Sabbath. And he's all, I'm always working. I'm the Lord. I work. My father's working 24-7. I'm working 24-7. In, in case you didn't realize, if I stopped working, there'd be a problem. <laughs> so I'm always at work. And these verses say he's always at work 24-7, taking every detail of your life that concerns you and orchestrating it with his divine power, wisdom, and love into something redemptive, something good. Which, of course, we want to see in the next 10 minutes, but it won't happen in the next 10 minutes usually, and sometimes not for 10 years. And that's where faith comes in and says, I know God is good. I know God's in control, and he's made me a promise that this thing, though bad in itself, can work out to be good. Now, he does say all things. Now, all things is a banner that's pretty expansive in what it includes. So you may be thinking, yeah, I can see how he could use this, but come on, there are things, and there are things that have happened to people in this very room that would be very difficult to ever even suggest that something good could come of it. But something could, can, and will, and has without us knowing it. And it may be when we stand before him with a glorified body and a glorified mind that we'll be able to say, aha, of course. In fact, C.S. Lewis said the first two words that Christians will utter in their new bodies will be, of course, because we'll have sudden clarity, because we will know as even we are known. We will fully know as we are fully known. First Corinthians 13, I believe. So you're all things, evil, sin, victimization, death, all things. How is that possible for good? Well, Billy Graham, I love to quote him when I can. He loved to use the analogy of, of salt. And he said, you know, we need salt. Salt enhances flavor. And more than that, we couldn't have life without salt. Salt is a necessity of life. And he says, but if you take salt apart, sodium is deadly by itself. Chloride is poisonous alone. But bonded together, something with, that enhances flavor and a necessity of life 
comes to be. And here's what he wrote. He said, in the chemistry of the cross, God in his wisdom and love takes things that in and of themselves are bad, and he puts them together, much as a chemist might take chemicals that are in and of themselves harmful and mixes them to make a medicine that brings healing. And so what about all the foolish things you've done? You're saying you don't know. What about the things I did deliberately to sabotage my own life? I'll ask you a question if it's covered in the clause. Does it fall under the words, all things? <laughs> then you've got your answer. Yes, he can take even that. Well, that sounds too good to be true. That's the gospel. We're talking about God and his love, not human logic or reason. And so it's all good is a saying that we like to say. I appreciate a positive attitude, and that's all it means. It's all good. I think I've even said it a time or two. But it really, when you say it's all good, it's kind of a little bit of wishful thinking and a little denial because it's not all good. This guy over here, he's got a, a lump in his chest. I see, I'm looking at another guy who has... Uh, fourth stage melanoma. He's sitting here. I'm looking at him. This is not good. That is not good. And to say all things are good is a misnomer. All things are not good. But God said, I'll take the bad things and I'll spin them in a way that will in the end work out for your goodness, for a blessing to you, and only God can do that. The best example is the cross. If you're thinking, well, how could he take such evil? Come on, the cross. That's God in a human body laying down on a piece of wood that he spoke into existence because he is the Lord of glory, the creator of all things. And he let them pull his beard out. He laid down on that piece of wood that he created, stripped and humiliated, mocked, and spat upon, and then lifted up to die in the most torturous way. The word excruciating comes from the word crucifixion. And yet God took the most sinister, diabolical deed ever done or ever will be and brought the most wonderful life-giving blessing from utter evil to unspeakable good. And that's the prototype for every last detail of your life and mine. You look at that as a cross, and God sees resurrection and life, but it's only good if you believe it. It's only good if you grasp it. It's only good if you, you walk in it. You don't have to live in denial and call it good. You can just know in your heart. You don't need to quote it to anybody either because it's kind of a sting to quote it when people are hurting. But you can know in your heart of hearts that I have a promise from the living God who says, no worries. You wait. You watch. You see. You're going to see a flower bloom on a pile of garden manure. I'm sorry. 
I just, sometimes I'm out of control. So he says, keep your mind now. So what does he mean when he's going to work it for good? We better know the definition of good, right? <laughs> the definition of good in this case is given you. He's saying, for God's good purpose, he's working all things to speed you along on the project called restore you to who he created you to be. In other words, to recreate you to his image. You remember Adam and Eve in the garden? They woke up in perfect holiness, perfect moral goodness, perfect perfection. And because of the sin, all of that was ruined. And the second the Holy Spirit gets control of the helm and raises you up to new life, his number one overarching theme over your life toward which all things are being predestined and orchestrated for the good of is to make you like him. That when you awake, and you will, he's going to finish the process, but when you awake in heaven... <laughs> You're going to be like him. You awake in his likeness, for we shall see him as he is. Perfectly moral, perfectly wise, whole, complete, and holy. That's what he's using all these things. Now, God uses all things in so many different ways, but he is saying in this particular case, he likes to use the our present suffering as a means to refine our character, and that's what he's doing in verse 29, saying that we, through the fires, if we cooperate, we'll emerge through the fires more Christ-like, more patient, more godly, less given to lustful thinking and greedy, self-absorbed thinking. Because we have suffered correctly and God has uh, allowed our character to be mature, James chapter 1, Romans chapter 5. That that's what suffering handled biblically will do. Don't waste the opportunity. For me, when suffering comes, I'm like, okay, let's get with it. What do you want to teach me? Let me cooperate because I want to uh, mitigate the amount of time he needs to allow this suffering to do his work. So doesn't it make sense to say, okay, what is it that I need to learn and grow through right here? Yes, pray three times to take it away or three times to get it. But if it doesn't come and it doesn't leave, then you've got something that you've got to work through with his grace and cooperate with. And the all things are working together for your good so that you're more like you're supposed to be. Not necessarily more happy. That's not the good. The, it's more holy, and when you're more holy, you are more happy. Now, the word holy, think of it this way, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy just means completely surrendered to God and his will. Completely at rest with him, completely obedient, completely loving him with all your heart, mind, soul, and spirit. See the wholeness of it? That's what he wants. That's what he's working all things together for good. A bunch of other things as well. But a lot of good comes from it. He advances the gospel through hard times. He grows us closer to him. Bad times aren't necessarily bad. 
They can be bad in themselves, but God says, no worries. I'm working to make you more like Christ. Now here, Christ is called the firstborn among many brothers. So he's saying, children of God, you've got an older brother. He's the prototype. So to call him the firstborn from the dead is to say that Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he opened the door for others, the children of God, who will follow him through death and resurrection. So he's the firstborn. He's the oldest brother. And then we must resemble him, we who follow after through death and resurrection and have eternal life. So we are children of God. Jesus is our older brother. God the Father is our father. Therefore, we must bear their, their resemblance. We must look like them. We must talk like them. Him. We must speak like him. First John and chapter 2. Anybody who claims to walk with Jesus must live as Christ lived. That's the whole point, and God is working to make that happen, that we should resemble. You know, in a family, there's a family resemblance, you know? There's two girls here. They're twins, but they're fraternal. I think they're identical, but they swear they're fraternal. But I can't tell them apart at all, Victoria Jones. Oh, my word. She walked into my house as Vanessa. And I'm talking to Vanessa like it's Victoria. And then she's all, you think I'm Victoria? I'm like, yeah, I know you're Victoria. <laughs> yeah, is this a test? Hello, Victoria. She goes, no, I'm Vanessa, her sister. What? She goes, yeah, that happens all our lives. Why? There's a resemblance. They're sisters. We're his brother. Where's the resemblance? You, you see, you catch you at the workplace. That doesn't resemble your older brother and your father. Catch your, how you talk to your wife, how you talk to your husband. Does that resemble? That's the whole point of this. It's that he's working everything to try to get the family resemblance to be stamped into you. Did you get that? <laughs> how many of you have felt that? You know? He's stamping the image in there. You know what? To, to make a diamond, it's got to be 90 miles deep. Do you know what kind of pressure on that carbon is? It's seven gigapascals. That's one million pounds per square inch. You know, if I told the gasoline station guy to fill up my tire at the PSI to one million, I think there'd be an explosion. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. It needs 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit to go from carbon to a diamond with the 1 million pounds per square inch. And then you get a diamond. Do you want fake cut glass? Really? You want something you can sell down at Long's? No offense. <laughs> or do you want the real thing? He's after the real thing. And so that's what verse 29, he started the project. And in case you're thinking it's never going to happen, he's like, oh, oh, on the contrary. And let me give you five reasons why it's going to happen. So we just talked about bad things becoming good in one sense. And now the good things that can't be lost. Let's talk about that. So... 
here we are. It's in verse 29, five affirmations. Number one, he says, if God's done anything in you and you've ever known him, all of these five things have happened. If one of them has happened, all of them has happened, and they're in past tense, even you being finalized in glory in heaven. It's already done. If anything's happened, it's all happened, and it's all over and done with, completed. It's called the already, but not yet. The one foot here and the one foot there, just waiting for the other foot to catch up. So he says, here's how you know you're going to be fine. Number one, God foreknew us. Now, I have a slide that has what theologians have called the golden chain of redemption. And it has those verbs there. He foreknew us. He predestined us. He called us. He justified. And he glorified us. And yes, that's not a typo. That's in the past tense. Glorified as if it has already happened. So let's walk through it. You can leave the slide up there. Number one, he says, take heart. Oh, Christian, God knew you and loved you. The word has a nuance about love. It kind of means to set your heart on someone, to know them intimately. And so before the world was spinning, before there was an earth here, he said, you were a twinkle in his eye in this regard, that God knew every detail about you, everything you'd face, everything you could take, everything you couldn't take. He's had a lot of time to think about you. And in that foreknowledge, he knew certain things about you. And some commentators say it's in as a basis of his foreknowledge of knowing all things about you that he knew that you would choose him. And so from the foreknowledge of God comes maybe the predestination of God to give us what he already knew we would do to make sure that it would prevail. Now, that's a beautiful thing to know that there are no surprises, his foreknowledge, there's no twists or turns in our story. There's nothing about us that God doesn't fully know because he's known you for eternity past. Now, predestined is a fun word to talk about. Are your minds ready for uh, some stretching? Let's talk about it. I hope you had a good breakfast. Now, the great paradox of scripture is this. In the scriptures, God clearly is sovereign and choosing, and man freely has uh, been given Free will. They're both working together. So let's talk about God is choosing because it says he chose us. He predestined us beforehand. Okay, that's pretty evident. John 15, 16, he says to his disciples, which is applicable to all Christians, he says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. This is on me. And then 1 John chapter 4, he says, this is love. Not that we first loved God. But the God first loved us. He's the initiator. And he's the one who, in his love, sent Jesus to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. We, we get this, all of that. Jesus told the Pharisees, they're squawking about something. He says, just 
No one can come to me unless God enables him or draws him. So we see, on one hand, the sovereignty of God, that, that he sees us before and he chooses, he, he pre-selects us. That's what it says. That's what election means. And then you have the scriptures that we are choosing as well. When he says in Isaiah, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. There are invitations and exhortations that God gives to us and then holds us responsible for either responding or not responding. That's because we can. Jesus would never say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, and I'll give you rest if we couldn't. He would never say, for God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He would never say those things if we couldn't do. He wouldn't say, choose this day. I lay death and life before you. Choose, make a choice. Choose life so that you may live if you couldn't. He wouldn't say it. So somehow, God is choosing beforehand. And we are choosing when we hear the gospel. And together, both of them are working. So you would say, okay, so you're not a Calvinist. The Calvinist is somebody who believes that God predestines people to heaven and predestines them to hell as well. So that that's called double predestination. So when somebody asks me if I'm a Calvinist, first of all, say, no, I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a Christian. I don't label myself by the names of theologians. I'm not adopting a theology. I'm adopting my Lord and Savior as my God. And I've got a Bible here. You know what I am? I'm not a Calvinist. I'm not an Arminianist. That's the theologian who said it's all up to, to man. It's his free choice. You know what I am? I'm a Middleist. <laughs> and I think that's very wise. Because you. what do you have? I can prove it. I've got scriptures that say, choose, make a choice. And then I've got scriptures that say, no one can make a choice because I've chosen you anyway. So they, most, they, they work together. No, some theologian who knows math worked this all out into a really simple equation so that it makes it easier to understand. I happen to have a slide that shows you that equation. Here it is. <laughs> Now, let me say this. Why did God tell us and give us the doctrine of predestination? To comfort us, not to confuse and divide us and leave it to the devil and our broken, sinful nature to turn a glorious doctrine that was meant to give joy and peace to God's children and turn it into a dilemma and something that divides us and makes us argue and bicker and it upsets people. What do you mean? What do you mean some people are What about the other people who weren't predestined? You know what the answer to that is? Believe, and then you are predestined. 
There it is. It's that easy. You have a choice. Amen? I can tell you're all, I can see smoke coming out of your ears. <laughs> so I'm going to move on with that. You can go back to the verses. So he goes on and he just says, in God's foreknowledge and love for us, he predestined, in other words, he, he locked in your response so that not even you can mess it up. And not even you can mess it up when it comes to salvation. Listen, if you're really intent on using your free will to, to shipwreck your faith, you can do that. If you want to make your Christian life miserable, unproductive, and ineffective, you can. We have pictures of that in the Bible. Go ahead. But there's one thing. If you have eternal salvation and the back to the golden chain, please. If the golden chain has happened to you, there's nothing you can do to stop that. You're going to heaven. And you know what? You may have a loss of reward because you are unfaithful, steward. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15 says that there will be people who just managed to escape through the flames. Woo! And as I've often said, the plane comes onto the runways of heaven, crashes, and the angels pull your sad body out. You're alive and well, and they hose you down. And everybody's like, whew, that was close, right? Yeah. <laughs> if you want that, it's all yours, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 15. You can have that, or you can have a wonderful entrance bright and beautiful with applause of heaven, with God himself saying, well done, good and faithful servant. You get it both ways. But as far as breaking this chain, if he's come in, what about people who say they were a Christian and then they're living like the devil? Well, either they were lying or they thought they were saved, but only God really knows who's who. They may be in a backslide. Or, as John says, they left us, they left the faith, because they never really were. They only appeared to be. But if this has happened to you, I'm sorry, you're stuck. You are going to heaven. You know why? Because it all happened to you. He foreknew you. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you, acquitted you, and glorified you. Past tense. There's no undoing it. And you'll notice there's no sanctified in there. Why? Because that would imply our participation in it. This is all a golden chain because it's done by God alone. We're all the way to called. Called. Called is where the Holy Spirit met you. When your eyes opened up, gradual as it could have been, or uh, abrupt as mine was, how many of you were abrupt? Your eyes just came open. How many of you? How many of you were more gradual? That seems to be the way God works. But when the Spirit opened you up to life and you were born again, he set your soul on the narrow way that leads to life that few find and off the road that's wide and leads to destruction, which many will go in. That's what being called means here. He called you. He pulled you up and out and set you on a trajectory that cannot fail. And then he goes on to say, the, when he calls you, he's already justified you. Justified means just as if I never sinned, acquitted of all wrongdoing. 
That's a beautiful word, justified. Declared not guilty, vindicated, a favorable verdict rendered on your behalf. Why? Because God's a good God and God just decided, well, you know, you're a pretty good guy. No, no, no. He became your sin. Every sin you ever committed, he became it. That's why God the Father looked away. And, God the, and, and he said, God, my God, my God, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Why, my God, would you forsake me? Because he became your sin and mine. So he took that off of you. And instead of that sin, he put his moral perfection in you. You're joined to him. So God can look at you and say, this is my son, this is my daughter in whom I am well pleased. It's more than just getting off the hook. And then finally here, as we wrap things up, God glorified us in point three, if you will. Still, the best is yet to come. Every commentator said the same thing. Notice in your text, the word is in the past tense. He should have said, well, God foreknew you, he predestined you, he called you, those he calls, he justified, and now in the future, of course, he'll glorify you. No, 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 no. Just as God is out, outside of time, right, so that he could know you before you existed, he's outside of time that he can know you outside of this time frame in this age. He's already in the age to to come, and he already puts you in heaven, seated you, raised you up with Christ, and seated you in heavenly places. From God's point of view, it's something that's been completed. From God's point of view, you are already there. That's why it's called already and not yet, and that's why he says, all I need you to do is work out your salvation with fear and trembling now. Because it's God who's at work in you to, to do and to will his good pleasure. But you're already there. He just says, just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Keep praying. Keep serving. And, and the whole point of Romans 8 is to give you the boost, the, 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 the encouragement to continue in the face of terrible things that happen. And he makes the whole list. And he says, oh, come on. You're more than a conqueror because God is in you. And God has ordained you to make it. Glorified you. That's crazy that he's saying we're already there. I told my students about this. I was reading Revelation. I've mentioned this before where John gets a vision of the future. Folks, it's not a, a symbolic vision he got. He sees the future and he does his best to describe the world coming apart, Armageddon, in terms that he, he can use there. And you can tell he's describing what he really sees. He really sees the future. And then he says, and I saw around the throne of Christ people from every tribe and nation and language and people group. And there they were worshiping God. And I started thinking about this. He saw real faces. He didn't see, you know, like, you know, they blur out faces on the news, you know, to protect those who don't want to be on national television. No, he saw people with faces because they're really the people 
who are there around the throne. And the Lord kind of ministered to me and said, he's seen you. Who's around the throne there? Those who were foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. You're already there. He saw a picture of the legitimate future where you were spotted. And he says, I looked and I saw you guys. I saw us. We were there, right? So from God's point of view, you're already there. Now he says, could that information help you in your present suffering? Can you take all of that knowing? Check this out. You know, remember the election in 2000 with uh, Al Gore and George W. Bush. It came down to one state and it came down to 536 votes. As they hand counted them, holding up to the light. Is that indented or not? Now, there was a lot of uh, anxiety. Now, imagine living through that as close to them. Or watching it on the replay the next day after everything's done and the Supreme Court decided everything's done. Now you're watching the video clip. I suggest to you, you will watch those two things happening in present time, and then knowing who won and glad about it, you will have a different feeling about it watching the rerun. He says to you, you're watching the rerun of your life because in the future that you can't see, you won. You won. You made it there. And every promise in the book that concerned you came to pass. You won. Does that help you today? You're going back into your life filled with present dilemmas and sufferings in a creation that's laboring under a curse of bondage and decay, the body that will soon break down sooner or later. Sorry, some of you look, it's gonna be a lot later because you're so young and beautiful. I hate to break it to you, enjoy it now. <laughs> enjoy it while you can. You've seen pictures of your grandparents, right? <laughs> yes, I'm talking to you. You make it. The thing that's eating at you, it loses. You win. Let's pray. God, thank you that the only reason we win is because you won 2,000 years ago by dying and losing. You brought victory to everybody. And that just speaks volumes for the very truth we're trying to digest here. That even the bad things in your hands will pan out to be beautiful. Somehow, some way. And thank you that we win. Help us to take that into our present struggles. In Christ's name, amen. 
You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 10.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.